to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. All right, welcome back to the next episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I am Lee Johnson, and I'm here with my fabulous co-host, Dr. Rick Lee and Dr. Charles Peterson. Today we're going to be talking about metaphysics. This is something that's been coming up a few times in our conversations this season, and I'm pretty sure that my co-hosts have some beefs to pick with one another about metaphysics, so I personally have got my popcorn ready, and I am super excited about this conversation today. But before we do that, as usual, we are going to ask our bartender, Noel, to serve us some drinks, and I'm going to ask my co-hosts what they're ranting or raving about this week. So, Rick, let's go to you first. What are you drinking? And give me a rant or a rave. Noel, I'll have a gin gimlet, and I'll let you choose the gin. I just don't want well gin. I'm in a raving mood this week, and so I'm in a rave about Karl Marx as literary stylist. I think he's often overlooked in terms of his style, and he is an incredibly funny and at times really beautiful writer. Nice, nice. What about you, Charles? Because I'm on spring break, I'm just going to have a cranberry juice and vodka with a twist, because that's what I drink when I start drinking at 10 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to rave, just like my man Rick, rave to the light fantastic. My rave is the five universal laws of human stupidity developed by economist Carlo M. Cipolla. I just came across this the other day, and it's like Saul on the road to Damascus becoming Paul. It was It's just epiphanic for me, and it explains everything I need to know about American civilization right now. And I swear it will be the final statement about what happened with America. So if you get a chance, look online. Carlo M. Cipolla's The Five Universal Laws of Human Stupidity. (laughs) Lee, what about you? What are you drinking and are you ranting or raving? I am going to have my usual, a fireball and Diet Coke. And since you guys are raving this week, I will rant. And I would like to rant about flip-flops. It's only partially about flip-flops. It's really about human feet in general. This is the time of year when, unfortunately, I have to look at everyone's feet. And I just, I have whatever the opposite of a foot fetish is. I don't want to see your feet. I signed on to that. I signed on to that. Pedophobe. All right, Rick. So give us an introduction. How are we going to be talking about metaphysics this week? So metaphysics is a topic that has come up in a number of our episodes that we've done together. And I am a metaphysician, and I've come out and said that in the past. And I think that neither you, Lee, nor Charles are as metaphysically inclined as I am. I know both of you experimented a little in college, but... (laughs) (laughs) I'm metaphysics curious. (laughs) But I thought it's time to take this head on and see what metaphysics is about, what role it plays in philosophy, and whether it has anything yet to talk about in our contemporary world, philosophically, politically, socially, and so on. So we're going to take reality by the horns, and we're going to get to the bottom of it. All right, Rick, so I am assuming that many of our listeners, both the ones that are professional philosophers and also the ones who are not, want to know, what do you mean when you say metaphysics? What is it? 
I have to begin by saying that even though I am a metaphysician, I really do appreciate that when you go into like a major bookstore, they often have a section called metaphysics. And what I love about it yeah. is it has to do with it's astrology, exactly, astrology <laughs> crystals, um, guardian angels. Yeah. <laughs> so we're not going to be talking about that. I will start with a really general definition of metaphysics. I think that metaphysics is the aspect of philosophy that investigates what is real, what counts as real, and what are the conditions, principles of reality. So it is, in a sense, the most general and maybe also, well, this will, I'll put my cards on the table, the most fundamental aspect of philosophy. That's why it's called often first philosophy. I know that you know this, but maybe our listeners don't. But of course, it's called metaphysics because it was the book that followed the physics in Aristotle. So meta means after and it really should be called something like subphysics or superphysics, right. but, it's actually, right. but it's called well, metaphysics. So the old story is that it followed the physics on the bookshelf in the library in Alexandria. So it's more like a catalog number or something like that. So it was hmm. the book after the physics. It seems like maybe that's a little bit suspect these days. The jury's still out. But you're right. I agree with the main point that if it deals with reality and the physics deals with reality insofar as it is moving, moving reality would come after the discussion of reality, not before. But what's interesting, by the way, about Aristotle's metaphysics is he thinks, and, and many philosophers think, that one should only come to metaphysics late in life that even though it is maybe systematically the first philosophy, in terms of the chops it takes in order to do it, you should only come to it late in life. Because if you come to it earlier, then you're too easily distracted, your mind is weak, and your philosophical powers are those of a Padawan. I just think about how lucky we are that Aristotle's text on eroticism didn't come after the physics. Where would that put us in terms of us thinking about certain issues in philosophy? I mean, I also came to meta-erotics in life, so... I'm saying what I like about this, and this is me becoming a Johnsonian in my thinking, that we've actually tried to define our fundamental topic. And it seems to me that for most people who think about metaphysics, and that's not most people, it's something having to do with the divine. Mm -hmm. I think people initially connected to questions of a larger spiritual reality. But what I'm always interested in, and certainly, you know, with the development of science over the past 2,000 years, how that's not necessarily true, but you can still have a metaphysics, but it's really just a higher level, I think, a more complicated way of thinking about or understanding the, the scientific world. What's really interesting about that, Charles, is that for reasons Lee and I were pointing out before, Aristotle doesn't use the term metaphysics. Right at all, and he does not use it in his metaphysics. And when he describes what he's doing in metaphysics, he says that it's the science of the gods. And he means this in two senses of the word of. The first sense is that it is the science that studies the divine, so the science of the gods, having the gods as its object. And the second sense is that it's the science or knowledge that the gods actually possess. That is, it's the divine way of mm -hmm. understanding the world. What I find interesting now, and, and this may be my own 
unbeknownst to me, metaphysical sensibility is that no separation between what we think about these higher orders of existence and how we understand the immediate material world that sort of scientific rationality functions at. That it's just a continuum of existence that we may be looking at. Well, one of the things that interests me about metaphysics is that one could argue that contemporary science, as you put it, either is metaphysics or has a, a bunch of metaphysical presuppositions that probably we would do well to bring to the fore. Presuppositions about causation, the relation of cause and effect, presuppositions about whether all reality is material or not, presuppositions about whether matter is fundamental or energy is fundamental. All of these are basically metaphysical questions that I think often go unexamined. And in being unexamined, the moment we accept the authority of science, we accept a number of presuppositions that perhaps we want to call into question. Sometimes people say that the first metaphysical question is, why is there something rather than nothing? And it does seem, following up on what you said, that the primary object of science, at least modern science, as we understand it, is not to ask that question, why is there something rather than nothing, but sort of right, right. how does the something work? How does the something come to be from nothing? I mean, I wonder if I could go back to this question about whether or not metaphysics is grounded in or necessarily interested in the divine. Because when I think about metaphysics and the way that I explain it to my students is I say, metaphysics is the study of being and reality. And I mean, that's not too far away from the way that Rick described it. And I think that to ask questions about some kinds of beings or some kinds of realities that are beyond those of our experience is right. already a metaphysical position, but that you very much could have a metaphysical understanding of being and reality that does not involve anything divine. Yeah. So for example, you could be a metaphysician and be a materialist. That is the Correct. position that whatever is, is matter, is a metaphysical position. And that wouldn't involve anything about the divine unless you would also say, well, there are gods, but they're also just matter, which would be an interesting position. Uh, but I agree with you, Lee, that to talk about metaphysics is not necessarily in and of itself to talk about something that is outside of or other than the embodied physical world in which most of our experience takes place. Yeah, and even that kind of a materialist metaphysics can still be a science of the gods in the second sense of of. It would be the science of the god's eye view of being and reality. What's interesting about that, Lee, is that to insist that whatever is is matter means that you already have to then ask, what is the condition of, of the possibility of my saying whatever is, is matter. And if I simply mm -hmm. posit that, whatever is, is matter, why is that different than saying God is the creator of the universe? God is the creator of what is. And so the metaphysical position of materialism on its face is not necessarily different than any run-of-the-mill theological position. And I think this is an interesting problem for metaphysics. So it sounds like what you're saying is metaphysics are inescapable. 
Well, yes, that's what I'm saying. Podcast done. Well, this is a short one. <laughs> Ooh, that was short work. Ooh, all right, let's go get another beer. <laughs> I mean, I totally agree with that. I think that there is no not doing metaphysics. I think you're either assuming a metaphysical position or you're asking metaphysical questions, but there is no avoiding metaphysics. One of the reasons why we together decided to finally have a topic on metaphysics is because it has been coming up in a number of episodes we've already recorded. And so that shows, I think, Lee, exactly your point, namely that you're either accidentally doing it or you're doing it on purpose. And maybe to requote <laughs> Quentin Crisp here, if we're going to do metaphysics anyhow, let's do it on purpose rather than on accident. Hey, listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the hotel bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their all-fair thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated, and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, back to our conversation. Rick, what you're saying reminds me of a great Pointer Sisters song called You Got to Believe. And the hook in the song is, you got to believe in something, why not believe in me? And it seems to me that what you're saying is, whatever you fundamentally believe in, whatever you may think is the first foundation, then that is your metaphysics. Are you saying that? I put the question to you, sir. <laughs> He's just an accidental metaphysician. So give, him a, give him a minute. <laughs> Tripped into the great beyond. Sir, have you no metaphysics? <laughs> At long last. <laughs> um, I disagree 100%. And Whoa. notice I channeled Lee's way of phrasing that. <laughs> and the reason I disagree is because, first of all, I think that it is entirely possible for you to have metaphysical commitments that slip under your own radar. That is, you have metaphysical commitments to things that you're not even aware you are metaphysically committed to. And I don't want to get in the weeds of this, but one of my renewed interests in metaphysics has come through my reading of volume one of Marx's Capital. And I think in many ways what Marx is showing there is that capitalism comes with a panoply of metaphysical presuppositions that it itself does not bring to the fore. In fact, it cannot bring to the fore because were it to bring it to the fore, no one would subscribe to capitalism as a just, ethical, or, or even intelligible economic system. And so I think that I would mm -hmm. like to separate off the question of belief from the issue of metaphysics for that reason. The second reason is I think that you could believe in all sorts of whack shit 
to which you yourself are not metaphysically committed. So on both sides of that question, I don't think metaphysics is just whatever you believe. So you say people operate under all kinds of metaphysical assumptions, but they may not be aware that they're operating under those assumptions. So is the awareness of it necessarily the definitive move? Could you clarify more what you mean by metaphysical commitment? Do you mean that self-awareness where you're now operating under this self-conscious set of beliefs and assumptions? Boy, I really do feel like I'm in the hot seat this episode. (laughs) (laughs) I think that the consciousness of one's metaphysical commitments is irrelevant to it being your actual metaphysics. And here I'll go back to Marx. And let me just give a relatively simple example. What I find striking, and Adorno was the first one to point this out for me, when one commodity is exchanged for another, there is an equivalence that is necessary in the very act of exchange. And so one ton of iron is one bushel of corn. And that is works in one sense mathematically and in another sense as an actual identity. I cannot exchange corn for iron if, in some real sense, they are not the same. And so now capitalism proceeds on the basis of an identity that is actually what other philosophers or what traditional philosophy would call a contradiction. And yet that contradiction is at the basis of the very act of exchange. And so this action has a metaphysical commitment that is the condition for its possibility that the actors are not even aware of. As Marx will say, it goes on behind their backs. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think that people frequently have metaphysical commitments that are contrary to the quote-unquote metaphysical commitments that they would avow. I think this happened, for example, a lot over the last two years when we all had to conduct more of our lives virtually. And we had all of these debates about, you know, like virtual classes are terrible. They're not real classes. There's not real learning going on. There's not real teaching going on there. You're not really interacting with your students, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now they're making claims about reality, about being, but they clearly have metaphysical commitments about the distinction between real and unreal, real and virtual, that are contrary to how they're actually conducting their lives. So they're saying things about how it is that they make the world intelligible, meaningful, maybe even morally or politically significant in one way or another, that are contrary to what their actual metaphysical commitments are. Because clearly when they go to a Zoom meeting or they go to a virtual classroom, they believe they're really there and other people are really there and that there's a real meeting going on. But they're failing to ask the important questions, which would be questions about what is the difference between the virtual I wholeheartedly agree, Lee. And what (laughs) I find interesting there is... We use an incredible amount of metaphysical language in incredibly sloppy ways that if we don't think more carefully about how we're understanding those terms, we slip accidentally into a metaphysical position that perhaps we're not even in favor of. And I think the term 
virtual is just one such case. Because when you say the Zoom meeting is a virtual meeting or we've been teaching virtual classes, okay, even before you define what virtual means, I would start wondering, are there aspects of your experience, your existence, things you do in other areas that are equally as virtual and yet you don't call them virtual? And why not? And and so there we need an investigation into... Is virtual the opposite of real? Is virtual fake? Is virtual just as real? So we need to figure out what this means. And I think that we are committed to the reality of other things for which we don't use the word virtual that are just as virtual as the Internet. Well, or virtual in different ways. Like we're committed to all kinds of things that we say are real that are not real, like an apple is real or a chair is real. You know, I think justice is real. Love is real. Friendship is real. But those are clearly, as you say, virtual in their own ways, by which I don't mean digital, but I just mean real in a non-materialist way. We could start adding some things that are also incredibly interesting. For example... I think that gender is real, and yet it's not a table or a chair or an apple. I think race is real, and yet it's not a table or a chair or an apple. So when we start looking at structures and structure-like entities, I think metaphysics becomes incredibly interesting and also incredibly important. I'm still not convinced by the distinction that you made between people operating under metaphysical assumptions behind their back, but foregrounding or being conscious of another set of assumptions. That's not them having a metaphysics. But going back to the idea of belief, because Lee's idea about why there's a metaphysics section in your local bookstore that has all of these various topics and books from crystals to burning sage to astrology, so forth and so on, why all of that is under the metaphysics section. I do think that the reason that the metaphysics section in the bookstore looks the way that it does is because in popular parlance, metaphysics is a synonym for religion, is a synonym for a belief system. And I usually hate to do this, but this is, I think, one of those points where it's important to say that we're talking about metaphysics as a discipline-specific term. So not the way that anyone calls metaphysics metaphysics, right? Where anything that you believe could be called metaphysics. I don't think that that's what metaphysics is in philosophy. I do think that that's what it is in the bookstore. And I think that the reason why the books are in that section in the bookstore is because of a slippage both in the meaning of meta and a slippage in the meaning of physics. And I think that metaphysics, as it's used to designate that category of literature— takes meta to mean beyond or outside of, which it can mean, and it takes physics to mean the physical. Then I agree with Lee that if I am committed to the reality of something beyond the physical, the only cognitive relation I can have to that is belief. And I spend my entire career as a metaphysician, as an instructor who teaches a lot of metaphysics, getting my students out of the habit of equating belief with a conclusion to an argument about something that is real, that is not physical. Belief is a different kind of cognitive relation that isn't just 
oh, if it's not physical, then I believe it. Mm. But rather, a belief is, to go back to Paul's definition, belief or faith is related to things unseen. Yeah. And I think that you could have convincing, conclusive arguments about things that do not appear by definition that I would not want to use the word belief about. And I think that the two examples that you gave earlier of race and gender are perfect examples in this case. Like I can give you real world statistical analysis of the effects of racial categories in many different ways in terms of birth rates and death rates and incarceration rates and the effects of gender categories in terms of hiring and pay and say, look, this is a real thing that has real world effects that are trackable, that are traceable and are in many ways anticipatable. And yet... I don't think that when you die and you go into your autopsy that they take out your liver and they take out your heart and then they take out your gender, right? Like it's not a physical thing. (laughs) (laughs) That's what's fascinating to me. The according to Hoyle exploration of metaphysics within a philosophical context, what is interesting is what people believe and how those beliefs have such an amazing material effect upon the way in which we live our lives and organize our societies and engage with each other as individuals. So it may not be metaphysics as such. But the way in which these beliefs, these thoughts, these assumptions that are working behind people's back, the way they impact the world is amazingly powerful and worthy of consideration for me. I want to be clear. I am not arguing that it is the belief in something that has real effects in the world. I am arguing that these entities have real effects in the world, independent of the belief or not. Oh, for you, that's metaphysics. The investigation of what those entities are, how they operate, what their principles and conditions are, that's metaphysics. For the record, I also think that what people believe is very important and how those beliefs impact their lives in the world is very important. But I think if I were going to write a book dealing with people's beliefs and how those beliefs impact the world, I don't think that I would say that what I was doing was metaphysics. And I think it would be interesting to look at the belief that there are alternative facts versus the ways in which people who hold that there might be alternative facts are committed to there not being alternative facts. In other words, when something comes out of the White House that is false— And the explanation for that is it's not false. It's just pointing to alternative facts. And I believe that my belief in that will have real effects in many ways in the way I interact with other people, in the way I think about immigration, in the way I think about race and so on and so forth and act, not just think, but act and behave. And yet when I'm driving my car or flying in an airplane, I hope to fuck that there are not alternative facts. (laughs) So I agree with both of you, I think, that the beliefs I have do have an impact on the world. They have an impact on my behavior. But I'm also arguing that there are entities that, whether I believe them or not, have real-world effects that we need to analyze the modes of their reality in order to figure out how it is they have these effects, what effects they have, and their mode of operation.
Hey listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, back to our conversation. What Rick said at the end of the last segment is something that's really intriguing to me, which is that at least one part of doing metaphysics is investigating the impact and the effects that real things have in the world. And I think maybe this might be a entree into what I've heard over the last two seasons with you guys as a disagreement about metaphysics. Rick thinks that metaphysics is first philosophy. Charles has said on more than one occasion that he's not that interested in metaphysics. So definitely does not think it's first philosophy. And I suppose maybe what I would like Rick to do is try to explain or even try to convince Charles of the moral and political impacts of metaphysical commitments. Because we know that's Charles's main interest, the moral and political impacts of ideas or systems, et cetera. So how do metaphysical commitments have moral and political payouts? Now that you've set it up that it's Rick's responsibility now to convince yeah. me yeah. before all of our yeah. listeners, oh, now I'm just going to dig in and right. say no. <laughs> You've just opened up the gates to obstinacy for me, just for my sense of pride. You you can't see it, but his Uggs are dug into that shag carpeting. I'm going to expand your scope of the question in another direction as well, Lee. So the direction you raised was, can I talk about the way in which metaphysical commitments have social and political effects and are important socially and politically? And before I address that, I would like to also say that I am not maintaining that metaphysics is a socially and or politically neutral aspect of philosophy. Mm -hmm. In other words, I would argue that philosophy is social and political from the ground up. And so one of my concerns is that a lot of moves that one might make when one explicitly comes to social or political theory may have been obviated, prevented, promoted in a metaphysical discussion that I don't want to enter too late. I don't want the game to be played metaphysically such that when I arrive with social theory or political theory, I've already lost the metaphysical game. So that's one direction I would push the importance of metaphysics. But secondly, I'm not simply interested in metaphysical commitments that I or anyone might explicitly have. I'm interested in the way in which society, political forms, political operations are only possible given a certain way in which reality is. 
And if you want to ask me, well, does the social operation make up entities or do those entities cause the social operation? First, I welcome that question. But second, I welcome you to metaphysics. Um, so I think enjoy that, the veal. <laughs> even if I spend a lot of time reading, let's say, medieval metaphysics and the intricacies of medieval metaphysics and so on, I think I develop really useful and important tools that help me uncover and analyze the metaphysics that are the condition for the possibility of all sorts of social relations, political formations, and even Pache Marx, economic formations and relations. We are not on different metaphysical aisles. planes. Metaphysical planes. We're in the same universe of the multiverse, if we want to get all Marvel comics. <laughs> My earlier claims about the relevance of metaphysics. Don't disconnect metaphysics from my other sort of philosophical commitments, political theory, power, social justice, so forth and so on. I just realized early on in my philosophical career that I think it much more important to do battle with the metaphysical assumptions behind the political, social, economic, so forth and so on, to do that battle in the realm of the political, social, and economic versus doing battle with it at the level of the metaphysical. Mm -hmm. So it's just a question of what part of the battlefield do I choose to devote my energy versus fighting the entire battlefield. I just choose to stick to one particular area on the larger battlefield. But in an interesting way, I think that that idea goes all the way back to our discussion about comedy and one of my interests in the philosophy of comedy, namely Hegel's discussion, in which Hegel insists that both comedy and tragedy deal with contesting positions. So we could think about Antigone. The tragedy there deals with the claims of the authority and legitimacy of the state versus the claims about the authority and legitimacy of either religion, popular piety, or family. So state versus blood would be one way to put it. State versus faith would be another. And by the way, in a Greek context, blood and faith might go hand in hand. There is a resolution in drama, both comedy and tragedy, for these conflicts. Hegel argues that comedy, rather than contradicting the claims of the other, in laughing, rise above that and show that they are merely apparent claims, not claims about things that exist, even within a society. And yet, what Hegel wants to say is even false appearances form part of reality. That's a metaphysical claim, right? False appearances also form a part of reality. Now, what I find interesting about his discussion of comedy is that it relies on the notion that in order to counter a position about what is, to show that it's false does nothing socially or politically. In other words, to point out that someone's metaphysical commitment is wrong does almost nothing. And so then the question is, how do I confront this without going into a detailed metaphysical analysis? I might not be able to convince them, and yet I still want to figure out how this metaphysics operates. This is a long-winded way of saying that I'm more and more pessimistic in U.S. society these days 
that the fight is worth engaging when it is coming on the social and political level, because that's seemingly more and more futile to me. I'm not saying I'm going to win it metaphysically, but I'm more and more convinced I'm not going to win it socially or politically. I think what you are saying has great value, and I appreciate it. The, the, <laughs> if, the if I've ever heard a run-up to saying, but you're wrong, <laughs> that was just it. <laughs> well, I'll happily jump in no, here with the, but you're wrong, because I could not possibly disagree more. <laughs> like, I, think that, I mean, I, I also appreciate what you're saying, and I think we've had this conversation a lot of times, and I have a better understanding of what Rick means when he says, it almost makes no difference morally and politically to begin with the metaphysical fight. But I do think that in my life, and I'm one of those people that made a truth teller of Aristotle. I came to metaphysics quite late in my career and mostly because the kinds of moral and political questions that I wanted to ask once I started to make this turn towards technology required first making metaphysical claims and I do think that in order to make the real moral and political and social changes that we need to make, that we have to fight those metaphysical battles first. We have to try to correct people. Not cor I mean, correct is a little bit too school marmish a word, but you know what I mean. I have to try to convince or, people. Or dicti dictatorial. <laughs> <laughs> right? But I have to try to convince people that they actually believe something different than what they're saying. And the only way to convince them is not to start at the level of it as a belief or even to start at the level of a practice, but to start at the level of a concept. And I think that that is a metaphysical question. And I've seen it change people's minds in my own classes when we talk about reality, when we talk about virtuality, when we talk about being and non-being. I've seen it change people's minds. And I think part and parcel with that is to expand what I often refer to as our metaphysical bestiary. Because I think mm. too often when we think about what is real, we stick with terms like it's either real or it's not real. It either exists or it doesn't exist. And we It's either real or it's ideal. Right. We tend to line up real and existing without then filling out what exactly do we mean by existing. And I think that, Lee, your point that recently the development of, I mean, going back to the Internet and then more recent developments of other forms of so-called virtual reality and then into the discussion of artificial intelligence and robots we begin to see that the ethical and social and political questions that emerge here demand a metaphysical accounting. And I think David Gunkel's conversation with us about robot rights got into that when he said, we need to start looking at what personhood is. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a metaphysical question. The legal question could be answered in terms of positive law, and that was his worry that if we let positive law define what personhood is without the metaphysical investigation, then we haven't really done the work we should do in developing an ethics that is appropriate to speaking about non-human or let's say even non-animal forms of personhood. 
Yeah, and I think we can see a parallel development over the last 50 to 60 years in the way that we've been talking about race. A lot of conceptual work had to be done in terms of how we understand the reality of race. You know, is it one drop of blood? Right. Is it skin color? Is it genealogy, lineage? Is it a social category? All of these things had to be done. And we had to really confront it at that level of a concept before we could get to CRT, critical race theory, where we can really talk about the complexities of the actual social and political effects of this real thing race, how those play out in our lives. And I think race is a really good example, because if I agree with Apia's argument that race doesn't exist, great, but that doesn't mean it's not real. And I then want to look at the mode of reality of something like this. And I think that's a really important contribution that metaphysics needs to make to questions, debates, and issues that we're confronting right now. One of my favorite essays in the philosophy of race is Charles Mills' essay that's titled, But What Are You Really? The Metaphysics of Race. Mm. And it is such a careful delineation of a whole network of metaphysical commitments, but he uses race as an entree into explaining how different metaphysical commitments have different actual effects in the world. Right. Once again, I don't disagree with any of this. Maybe I'd come at these questions in a very reversed sort of way. So to Lee's comment about the ways in which a certain type of theoretical conceptual work has been done to begin to alter and change what used to be the general conception about race from 60 years ago, not completely convinced that that regime of belief has been overturned. But it was the political, social, organizational, administrative battles that got people in a place where we could really begin to explore that reconceptualization around the issue and then begin to make that argument. So for me, in order to get to the point where we can get people to start rethinking or consider rethinking what we assume race to be, we actually have to have power to do it. We have to achieve a certain type of institutional positioning in order to start making that argument. So it takes certain types of battles to get the scholars within the institutions of higher learning. Then they can begin to make the argument that in our framework, we would refer to as the metaphysical argument. But before having to engage the battles to acquire the power to change people's minds, you have to have another idea. Mm, Right. Right. That like you have to have another argument. That's the whole motivation for trying to make the moves, gain the power, get into the conversations where people's minds can be changed. You have to have something that you want them to change their minds to. You know, and I could say in response, then it becomes a chicken or egg thing, that it's the actual engagement with the world that leads one to begin to develop a separate idea. Now, yes, we can argue that civil rights activists, black people have a very separate idea about who they are, what their humanity constitutes over and against what white supremacist is saying. I'm not subhuman, you think I am, I'm not subhuman. That's a competing idea, but it's not an idea that's developed. It's an already existing idea. Right, that precedes the struggle to change the minds of the other people. My commitments are to that engagement with the world, per se, that will then lead you to be able to be in a position to really affect the thinking of others who disagree with you versus the self-work that's already accomplished that you're describing. One thing that Lee mentioned 
that I think is a fundamental part of my commitment to metaphysics, not my metaphysical commitment, but my commitment to metaphysics, is that part of this work of convincing others relies, as Lee said, on having already an idea to replace the reigning idea. But I also think as an element of strategy, to say that your belief that you have is like these other kinds of metaphysics that you reject. And the metaphysics I'm proposing is like these other kinds of metaphysics that you accept. I think there could be a strategic moment in showing the relation between the metaphysics in one sphere of one's experience and the metaphysics in another sphere that might be an important strategic way to get someone to change their mind. I completely agree with that. And I also think that quite often that strategy also fails, but that does not nevertheless make it a good strategy. I think about this often when debates about women's rights to choose are being made in the Senate or before the Supreme Court. They almost always have a scriptural basis. And I think it's sometimes helpful to say to people who believe that we ought to make policy on the basis of scripture to say things like, okay, let's make usury illegal, right? right? Let's say, you know, you can never again charge interest on a loan and force them to say, no, we're not going to do that because you can't base policy in scripture, right? right? That is sometimes a really effective strategy. And so goes with metaphysics. (laughs) (laughs) I also think that Lee was pointing out earlier my general pessimism about the effectiveness that we philosophers, we maybe in general as academics, possess, I'm less convinced that we're effective in directly changing hearts and minds. But I do think that one way in which I might accidentally change hearts and minds (laughs) in the right direction is by engaging in discussions of metaphysics that might not have anything to do with the political or social or economic question at hand, that then students on their own will come to see, wait a second, I realize now that this argument in Aquinas about why form is required in addition to matter actually is something that I'm committed to when I think about race. And I didn't like it in Aquinas, so I shouldn't like it when I think about race. I love this accidental metaphysician bit of yours. Like, it's like, it's like, abracadabra. (laughs) Ta-da! Well, and by the way, since I teach metaphysics a lot, students always think it is a bit of hocus pocus. Yeah, yeah. I will support that. I think entering into mundane conversations, and I don't mean mundane in a dispiriting way, can lead students to begin to engage in a metaphysical Mm. self-reflection. And I think I'm more comfortable with that versus going directly toward the metaphysical sensibility. That I have very, very serious doubts about in terms of the effectiveness of it, because you're basically asking someone to consciously begin to unravel the very sense of themselves. 
So maybe I'm more comfortable saying I'd much rather go the roundabout way looking at these particular questions, issues, engagements, and then let students get to slowly ingest those. And then they have this revelatory moment where they realize, oh, based on what the specifics you told me, the general thing that I think that I've embraced I have questions about. Well, let me ask you a question, Charles, because I wonder if you would say the same thing about ethics. If you would say, what I'd rather do with students is work through actual moral problems and then let them sort of figure out on their own what, as principles, as axioms, they're committed to morally or politically. I might disagree here because I think that it's important to also have the theories, to also have at least options of concepts to work with and not just to work through problems and figure it out for yourself. Maybe in the case of ethics, yeah, maybe that's a better way to do it. This is the larger theory, and let's begin to look at individual cases where we apply that theory to test its consistency. I'm not saying that's a bad way to do that. I'm just saying that I think in terms of this question of engaging, how do we turn people into accidental metaphysicians? I'm saying that's a better way to do it. I'm not saying that's the best way to do all of these various explorations. I think this is really helpful because I think now I'm getting a much better understanding of what you've been describing all along as your resistance to metaphysics. And it sounds like what Charles is saying is that for him, metaphysics is last philosophy. It's definitely not first philosophy, right? <laughs> and so it's sort of where you get once you figured out all of these other social, political, moral, etc. problems, then you figure out from that some metaphysical position. Yeah, that's, uh, that's probably very close. And I think what Rick to... is saying is that whether people acknowledge it or not, they can't do any of that without already having metaphysical commitment. Yes. So it really is a first philosophy, last philosophy battle here. But I want to say two things. One in relation to what Charles said before. I want to make it clear that, and maybe this is my failure as a teacher, but I am almost never confrontational in terms of students' philosophical commitments. I can get very confrontational when it comes to the way you're acting in my classroom and so on, but I am not ever going into a class with the intention of robbing students of the reality on which they have based their lives. When I teach metaphysics, I show all sorts of metaphysical systems from substance essence versus accident metaphysics to Kantian critique of metaphysics to Descartes, both doing metaphysics and being on the brink of turning it actually into a theory of knowledge to a materialist metaphysics and ending up with a kind of pragmatic understanding in which metaphysics is born out in action. And I don't ever try to rob anyone of their metaphysics, but we can look at the positive and negatives of all of these various forms of metaphysical commitments, in which case students might object to someone like Aristotle and the distinction between substance and accident and its reliance on essence and that this reliance on essence is actually an imposition and not something that would be independently discoverable besides the imposition. And they might understand that, in fact, their lives are based on a very similar metaphysics that they are uncritical of in their lives, but they're critical of it here. So either they need to figure out why Aristotle isn't wrong or why they are. But I don't directly say your metaphysics is bullshit 
And here's a better metaphysics. I just want to give students the facility to understand what terms, what questions, what issues arise metaphysically and to give them some tools with which to deal with those questions. Rick, I'm not trying to steal from you your metaphysical commitment, but I am curious to hear what exactly it is. <laughs> so appropriate to metaphysics, my metaphysics is incredibly complex. I am a materialist who also understands that what it is that we might mean by matter is something that resists conceptualization. If I could come up with a definition of matter, it would be precisely that, that which resists conceptualization. So I'm a materialist, but one who understands that my materialism has to emerge out of the failures of conceptualization. Having said that, let me just say that I don't think necessarily everyone should be a metaphysician. I think probably once in their life, everyone should be a metaphysician. <laughs> um, Somewhere around your sophomore year. You, <laughs> you only find metaphysicians in a foxhole. There are no non-metaphysicians in a foxhole. That being said, I want to come back to something I said in our discussion of Nietzsche, which is I said I don't have an ear for Nietzsche. And I also get that those of us who work in philosophy and philosophically adjacent fields have ears for and talents for and skills related to many different aspects of philosophy. And so I don't want to tell everyone that they need to be doing metaphysics. If you don't have an ear for it, if you don't have an interest in it, that's fine. I just want to insist on the importance that somebody's doing it. It's a philosophical division of labor. But Charles, I know that you're metaphysically resistant. Do you have metaphysical commitments? I do. My metaphysical commitments lie in my idea of the, of the nature of intelligence and mortality. Mm. I'm someone who embraces, for many indigenous African societies, the idea of the porousness between the material existence and the spiritual existence. I believe in ancestors. I believe that one can maintain our consciousness beyond the physical body. And part of the maintenance of that is the ways in which people continue to understand, believe, have a commitment to your existence, even post-mortem. So yes, that's probably the closest I come to a metaphysical commitment. Anything else is probably quantum physics. <laughs> <laughs> Lee, what about you? I mean, I suppose these days I would probably say that my most significant metaphysical commitment is that I believe that reality is a system of meaning, mm. but that it's an open system. And so like all open systems, it's constantly producing remainders, traces, et cetera, that resist systemization. Mm. And so for that reason, I think that basic metaphysical questions, questions about reality, for example, permit for a lot of 
interpretations, permutations, etc. What I like about that is it fits in very nicely with your constant reminder that the so-called difference between things and information might not actually be a difference. And so your issue of meaning is something that slips nicely between what we normally would call information and what we would normally call a thing. Well, guys, I hate to tell you this, but it looks like Noel is flashing the lights and coming to collect our drinks. We didn't even get a last call (laughs) because she was like, (laughs) she was like, they'll never know if it was real or not. Those accidental metaphysicians. Her metaphysical commitment is going to fuck home on time. Yes, yeah. (laughs) I'm going to have one of you guys call a cab. We don't have a designated driver today, but I do want to remind our listeners that you can be our designated driver for one episode by visiting our Patreon site at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions and signing up to help out this podcast a little bit. In the meantime, guys, you want to go try to figure out why there's something rather than nothing? (laughs) 